This is Podcast 53. Holy mother of space. (laughs) I asked her to forgive us, and I even cried as I stroked her for the last time. Well, it's very emotional. What's it about? The Interplanetary Podcast. The exploration of space for the benefit of all mankind. Your hosts here in London, Matthew Russell and Jamie Franklin. Well, following on from last week, we, of course, we were we were celebrating the 60th anniversary of uh, Laika the dog going into yes, space. Yes, we did. Yeah, sorry about that episode, everyone. Is everyone all right? Because I don't think I am. <laughs> no, you've been in therapy, haven't you, this week? Yeah, I have. Yeah, been in animal space pet death therapy. It's a thing. <laughs> and uh, yeah, this was the ninety now ninety year old Russian biologist Andalia Gotovskaya. Nice. Kotovskia. Uh, recalling the day she bid farewell to the poor little doggy 60 years ago. Oh. <laughs> well, you know, there's going to be some feelings and emotions going around, and I'm glad that there is. The Interplanetary Podcast. Putting, Putting the ace, ace back, back into, into space. space. Let me hit you with this. Like, subscribe, follow us, five-star review. We get rich. You get more podcasts. Better interviews. Hell yeah! All right. So, yeah, just work your way to www.interplanetary.org.uk. That's where to go to. Yeah. Or just type Interplanetary Podcast into Google, and we're, and we're all over it. Of course, when we say we get rich, you know, guys, we're only joking. We'd, we'd never have that. We don't get a penny. The, we don't get a penny. We, we don't get a penny. And whilst, of course... Matt's not looking for money. He's looking for money. I'm looking for love for space. <laughs> one small step for Matt. One giant leap for Matt's love. Oh, that's beautiful. One small oh. subscribe to the podcast. One <laughs> giant leap <laughs> for podcast One giant kind. leap in our iTunes yeah, reviews. Nice. Matt, I'll tell you who I'm excited about hearing from mm-hmm. today. Jean-Jacques Favier. Jean-Jacques Favier. Again, one of our favourites. One of our favourites, From our Dutch road trips. Obviously, he's French with a name like Jean-Jacques Favier, isn't he? Can't get more French. (laughs) So, yeah, he's a French engineer and former CNES astronaut. So that is what the astronauts, French astronauts, belong to, CNES, before they became ESA astronauts. And he flew aboard the STS-78 mission he did and after that i mean this is wow so he was due to fly aboard the tragic columbia mission in 2003 but later signed out of the mission now i assume when he's when it says signed out of the mission he was told that he was no longer needed or did he no i think he decided he didn't want to that that yeah that he didn't want to do that mission so i think it he god that's crazy i don't know what the reasons were but yes he didn't fly on columbia which yeah must be a very odd feeling for him really odd yeah really odd Blimey. So, Matt, 1971, received an engineering degree. That's the year of my birth, by the uh, way, for those people keeping a track when they want to, you know, give me a birthday present. You know, just give them a shout yeah. out. <laughs> uh, and this was from Grenoble Institute of Technology. Yep. Then he got his PhD from the École de Mines de Paris in 1977. Also in 1977, earning another PhD, this time in... Metallurgy and physics. Metallurgy. Yeah. 
Wow, that's beautiful. Or metallurgy. Uh, and that was from the University of Grenoble yeah. as well. Although the French might say completely different. Uh, so, yeah, he's, he's been uh, an advisor to the Director of Material Science Research, CRM, and at the French Atomic Energy Commission, CEA. So, yeah, Blimey. so he proposed the Mephisto program. Mephisto is a, an acronym for something, which is a collaborative project between French Space and NASA and developed many scientific projects uh, since 1985. So he's, you know... Matt, do you know what the interesting thing about Mephisto is? Yeah, go on then. It's on the end of Mahando. <laughs> Actually, yes. you know what? As, as, as hilarious as that pun is, I kind of got it wrong. I should have said my armo, shouldn't I? Oh, yeah, of course you should have yeah. said it's on... Because yeah. your fist kind of is your hand, isn't it? But, you know, I'll, I'll work on that. I'll work on that. Yeah, it's good, though. I think it stands for Materials Processing Experiment. Really? But I don't know. It, it, doesn't, it seems, to be, <laughs> seems to be missing quite yeah. a few uh, Adding bits a in there. T and an O. Oh, well, yeah. that's interesting. So oh, he was the, French. So he was the principal investigator for Mephisto Materials Processing Experiment, which made its debut in the United States microgravity payload in 92 and 94. So let's let's just quickly talk about his uh, STS seventy eight flight. Yeah. That was also Columbia, so it was it was a, a Columbia flight, and he logged four hundred and five hours in space and on a sixteen day life and microgravity space lab mission. So yes. space lab was uh, a bit like the Columbus module that's now on the ISS, but space lab was like a module that sat in the payload bay of the space shuttle so very similar to being like a kind of in it basically turned the space shuttle into a kind of international space station laboratory style thing very cool really cool so it's a precursor to all that and it's very much a european uh, thing hence we find european astronauts like jean-jacques aboard it absolutely yeah uh, but there were 10 other nations involved and five other space agencies uh, to uh, conduct full microgravity studies. And we're going to talk about microgravity later on, Jamie, in, oh, in, in a special feature of oh, yeah. misconceptions of space. Oh, I'm excited about this one. You yeah, know, I've been I'm, I'm... rabbiting on about it for months. <laughs> so guess how many miles he went when he was flying around the Earth on Columbia? Uh, I'm going to just pluck a number out of the air. Seven million? Seven million. Yes. That's not bad, is it? <laughs> That's pretty good. <laughs> yeah, that is pretty good. And there was 22 life science and microgravity experiments. Uh, so, yeah, that's the LM, using the LM2 Space Lab module. My personal so, favourite. Yeah. So shall we just... Let's stop rabbiting on, shall yeah. we? Shall we just listen to the man himself? This I love this interview, and I think this was the first one we did, wasn't it? It was the we very first Essex? one. So it's, uh, let's pop so our cherry as, together. Yeah, so... Écoute... It's time for So good morning. My name is uh, Jean-Jacques Favier. I'm uh, French and um, I was uh, a former astronaut. Uh, I flew on the Space Shuttle Columbia in 1996. My background, I'm a physicist and engineer, so I flew as a payload specialist that is uh, responsible for the uh, instrumentations on board 
uh, I was um, a professor at the uh, International Space University uh, to uh, one week ago, so I retired <laughs> just now, right. and uh, took this opportunity to come here in uh, ESTEC, the Netherlands, for the Open Day. The Open Day is the possibility for the public from um, this country but also from all over Europe to come and visit all the facilities here. So last time we had more than 9,000 people visiting during the day and we expect, because the weather is good today, uh, we, ex we expect to get also some 10,000 of coming. Wow, amazing. We're really excited to be here. So I made a lot of things in, in my professional career as an engineer, a scientist, as an astronaut also, and then as a professor uh, recently. So um, I had a lot of fun in my, my job. I was lucky for that. Mm. Of course, if I had just to uh, keep uh, one day out of all of this, probably... Uh, the launch of my flight will be this day because just so unique, you know. I expected this uh, day since about 11 years. I've been selected, first selection in France was 11 years before my flight. Yeah. So um, I was uh, so impatient to, 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 to go into space and to travel in, and to travel in space, but also to, to work in space because as a scientist, actually, I considered that my flight and the mission I was responsible for was this, uh, the continuation of my job as a scientist. Uh, I prepared some experiments in my lab and I flew on my flight, I flew three experiments prepared in my lab with my colleagues, so so preparation on the ground as a scientist, then developing of the engineering uh, models and everything, flying these experiments, uh, manipulating in space, and then after the flight, actually, and, and the full analysis of the experiment. So I made a full circle, which is rare actually in this in this uh, in this job. So the whole journey. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um, did you have any uh, favorite astronauts growing up, or who is your space hero? Well, I, I followed the, all the programs since the very beginning, because I remember in the flight of, uh, first flight of Gagarin, for instance, uh, I remember him easily because uh, he flew just the eve of my 12th uh, birthday. Oh, yeah, oh, wow. so an age where actually you understand what happens, you know, and therefore he was for a long time my, my hero. But I never imagined at that time that I will be able to join this program because it was just for superheroes and so <laughs> on, and, and, and for people not to tall and I, I grew up and grew up and so I was not able to uh, to uh, I thought I was not I will not be able actually to fly because of my uh, my height uh, but uh, thanks to the uh, the shuttle program the shuttle program so you can fly uh, tall people like me mm -hmm. I was the tallest one by the way but, <laughs> but uh, <Very> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I started my <coughs> as a French so we were able either to to, to go flying with the Soviets or Russians mm. or with the Americans. So I started the, the, the training at the Star City with the Soviet at that time. 
and uh, after six weeks uh, we had the training in the Soyuz capsule and they discovered that I was too tall for the Soyuz they said you, can, you, you will not be able to, able to fly yeah. with us yeah. uh, today I could fly in the Soyuz because they changed actually the seat but at that time I was too tall so the only way for me to, to fly was actually to fly with the Americans on the shuttle and this is what <coughs> I was able to do uh, 11 years later wow <laughs> yeah oh yeah you must, that must have been a sweet relief when you're flying yeah absolutely sitting in a absolutely I was saying that uh, this is probably the day I will keep in mind the longest mm. the launch of my flight amazing <laughs> so what would you say is the most important work that ESA is doing at the moment well doing, um, ESA is doing a lot of things as you know of course <clears throat> well uh, ESA is continuing doing uh, very um, uh, deep uh, science uh, um, but uh, also is taking into consideration more and more applications, space applications mm. and also trying to follow the, the trend which has uh, started in the United States of what you call the new space mm. where you actually could fly experiments uh, very uh, cheaply uh, compared to, 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 to the past you know mm. So, um, as a professor at the International Space University, I was the uh, research uh, director, and we flew small experiments. We have nanosatellites, something you can find, or nano experiments on space station that you can develop for less than uh, 100,000 years. You know? mm. So, this is affordable for students, universities, and, and also for commercial applications. Mm. So things are changing, and I think ESA, uh, like the main uh, uh, space agencies, are following this new trend now. Mm -hmm. And of course, as a scientist, uh, I would say that um, exploration will be very important uh, in the years to come, and uh, um, I think we will be back on the moon soon now, and probably go to Mars uh, in the 15 years to come. Yeah, so that actually leads me on to my final question, which is, do you think we should be going to the moon first, or do you think we should be going to Mars, and which one would you do? Would you go to the moon or go to Mars? I, I think it makes sense to actually to go back to the moon for actually uh, long duration uh, or permanent uh, residence there. Uh, for scientists, uh, for explorers, uh, who could also try to uh, um, uh, to uh, make commercial uh, activities uh, using the uh, in situ resources, and this will be um, a good step forward uh, in the, in the frame of the uh, final destination, which is Mars today. We cannot imagine. Having humans on another planet, so mm -hmm. Mars is really the, the final destination. And um, of course, we had already a lot of uh, robotic mission on Mars. But if you want to talk about exploration, you need actually the human presence on board. You know, yeah. you can actually send robots to to make uh, some um, preliminary measurements and uh, preliminary uh, studies. But uh, by definition, um, uh, science and research is the unknown. Okay, so you mm. cannot uh, you cannot just um, uh, have robots doing it for you. You should have the, the uh, human human imagination on board, mm, yeah. and therefore uh, human missions make sense. Absolutely. I'm afraid Matt lied. I've got two more questions for you. Uh, but the first one, actually, is quite an interesting one. I want to know what your favourite space fact is. Um, I think uh, uh, it was uh, 
July 1969. July 1969. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, it makes sense. Uh, I remember at that time because um, I was uh, uh, junior, I was uh, 20. 20 years old, yeah. and my parents didn't get the TV at the time, so mm. I remember going to my uncle, uh, who had a black and white yeah. poor TV, you know, <laughs> to see his images, yeah. and uh, I remember this night when I was looking at uh, Armstrong and Buzz uh, Aldrin, and from time to time going out in the backyard. Look at the moon looking up. These guys are there. Yeah, is it possible? Yeah, yeah. No, that is mine. Amazing. That's yeah, exactly. Yeah. So uh, we wanted to, s a lot of the people who listen to our show obviously want to know what advice that someone like yourself might have for somebody wanting to become an astronaut um, mm -hmm. and, and maybe what the best advice that you were given was when you were starting. Wow, that's, that's a tough, tough question yeah, actually. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> especially today because... Um, when I flew, we had more flight opportunities with the shuttle than today, okay? Mm -hmm. Mission was shorter, but um, we had um, up to 50 astronauts flying every year. Yes. Today, you have, uh, uh, I have 10, a dozen, yeah. okay? So, what I, because at, as a professor at the International Space University, my students come, come to me and, and they, uh, but what can I do actually to be an astronaut myself? I say, yeah, that's a good dream to have uh, to be an astronaut, but it should not be the only um, dream you have. Uh, make, try to <coughs> try to to learn as much as you can, and uh, in general have actually a double profile like mm. engineer and uh, astrophysicist sure. or engineer, medical doctor, or things like this, because <coughs> then the people who will make this kind of mission will be limited in number, mm. so they should have knowledge on many, many things, you know? Mm. So the best for you, actually, is um, to go as far as you can in your studies, double uh, uh, profile, and have actually the dream of uh, being an astronaut as a cherry on the cake, you know. Absolutely, that's the bonus. Yeah, yeah, right. the bonus. Yeah, that, that's fantastic. That's fantastic advice. Thank you very <laughs> yeah. much for joining us. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Cheers. Thank Thanks you. very much. I hope it helps. <laughs> no, that was wonderful. Right, what a, what a great guy, huh? Such a great guy. Another person that I would want as a grandparent. Yeah, I think he can. He can. You all, he can come come round. We can. We can play. Um, we can eat Werther's, but I could also say, could you tell me about your laboratory work in zero gravity? I wonder if he'd be good at Trivial Pursuit. I've got a feeling it would oh, be really would irritating be. playing Trivial Pursuit with astronauts. Yeah, that's true, especially French ones, because he'd just say that's a French word, <laughs> and we wouldn't know. Yeah, true. Legend. Uh, a little bit of space news, Jamie. Go on. It's, I don't know whether this is new. I don't know whether we can we can consider this news. Yeah. Uh, about SpaceX, but SpaceX are aiming for a late December launch of Falcon Heavy. Ooh. For me, that that wasn't it supposed to be November, so now it's slipped back. But that's quite it's quite exciting, isn't it? That it means is exciting. It's in a month. Yeah. Possibly in a month, we might see Falcon Heavy. But something we haven't talked about on the on the pad podcast, we've barely mentioned old Elon Musk, have we? Oh, well, not, the, we, we don't talk about him. No, drink. True. So, uh, <laughs> and I haven't had a chance to unleash my Elon Musk. Um, oh my goodness! We, you can't keep this from the world, Matt. 
No, so maybe, yeah, I might play it. I might play it next week. But I, th- I think that we should note that um, there's been a little bit of chitter-chatter in, in what's the point, really, of a Falcon Heavy if he really is going to build the the BFR? Yes. And maybe Falcon Heavy will fly a couple of times and then it'll be like, well, now we're just using the BFR. Yeah, that's a good point. So, yeah, it's, it's it'll be interesting to see what really happens well we'll have to wait and see so 29th of december is when it might fly so that'll be a nice little kind of i'll be at home full of christmas turkey so like and and, it's my mum's birthday so i'll be at home full of turkey and i can sit there with my lovely mum and say happy birthday mum should we check what musk has done and she'll be like what do you think we can get away with flying flying out at Christmas time to uh, Pad Thirty Nine A? Oh yeah, it'd be fine to, to check it out. If I know Musk, he'll he'll send us like he'll send us tickets like VIP tickets. <laughs> Probably stick us in some kind of hyperloop from uh, you know Europe to the States. Yes, yeah, so a hyperloop ticket. Yeah, because that's going to be finished on time. Oh, exactly. Be well quick. So I'm taking the I'm taking the Mickey a little bit out of um, SpaceX by saying you know that, that we get schedules slipping all over the place yeah but spacex are probably on monday going to double their record of launches in a year and it's only november so it it looks like you know they're going to actually get this what would it be the 16th flight i mean they they might you know be over optimistic but he knows that and he always takes the mick out of himself for that they still always end up smashing it out of the park eventually yeah. I'm hoping this will be no different, Matt. Yeah, so this 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 is a Korean satellite he's launching on Monday. So I'm definitely going to be watching that. Um it's it they are absolutely steamrolling their uh Falcons out the door at the moment. Well, That's, let's hope if he puts his heart and soul into this launch. That's very good. Very good. good. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh dear. What yeah, so that's one point five times a month he's launching, which is which is a, a, spectac- a spectacular rate, isn't it? Well done, Elon Musk. Well done uh, for that. Uh, on the on the flip side of that, I've got another uh, Elon Musk story that what? I picked up from an f- absolutely fantastic article again by Eric Berger in uh, in Ars Technica. Oh yeah, and it's yeah, and basically there's a kind of. <laughs> I my from reading this article, it seems that there's a kind of uh, lobbying group that are using their power to kind of try and rubbish uh, Elon Musk a little bit, and they're doing this because uh, obviously there's a lot of American interest in companies like the United Launch Alliance who are losing business at a rapid rate to this upstart Musk. Yes. So um, there's uh, so that's a really interesting article that I, I suggest everyone go out and and that's an article by Roberto. It's, it's called Breitbart. Other conservative outlets escalate anti SpaceX campaign. So there's a lot of of the kind of right wing press in America are rubbishing John McCain and in Elon Musk. Yeah, totally, totally incorrectly proper um uh fake news articles that just mm. simply inaccurate and uh, uh but uh, i think eric berger doesn't think that it's a kind of right-wing conspiracy he thinks it's much more of a kind of money people with money conspiracy a uh, right you know, yeah well yeah. i think 
Yeah, God, isn't it? Isn't it ironic, Matt? This whole fake news that, that they're always the ones screaming about fake news, you know, against them, and it's oft, often them. Be careful what you read. So yeah, poor old Musk is coming to a bit of criticism when really they should be, you know, singing the praises of someone who's who's manufacturing a rocket completely in America. Unlike do you think he really worries though? Do you really think he worries that much about them? (laughs) Well, people like Brian Bart. I mean, they're a joke. Yeah, I mean, well, they're not a joke. They're powerful, but but, I think surely someone like him would just go, "Well, well, it's Bright Bart," you know. Yeah, What'd but I expect? think it's a joke. I don't know. I think it's a joke this side of the Atlantic. I don't. I don't think it plays out that funny out, out over in America, though. I think. No, what I mean by that, joke depressing. is no, but yeah, you know, I, I hear what you're saying. Why I hear would what you're saying. Why would Musk lose sleep over these idiots? No. no, I don't think he does. But it must be a little bit. I saw. I did see a video of Musk having a a, a large whiskey round a campfire, singing um, singing songs. So uh, <laughs> I don't think he's too worried. Yeah, maybe that. <laughs> maybe that's it. Have another oh, one, Elon. So we were talking about um, animals in space last week, Jamie. Yeah. And uh, recently, um, uh, experts in interstellar travel. This is a, a piece by Leonard David on his own website. Yes. Uh, and he says in, inter, uh, experts in interstellar tra- travel have picked future candidates to make the first extrasolar trek. Now, who do you think? Who do you think it's going to be? Ooh, I don't know. Hit me. It's going to be the old tardigrades, of course. Ah, oh, yes, of course. Yes, yeah, so yes, yeah, so tardigrades will probably be our first interstellar travellers, along with the old nematodes as well. Oh, you can't leave them behind. No. Did you ever see my video of of tardigrades that that I did when I, I did. under my microscope? I did. How cool is that? Very cool. Yeah, you in need fact, to do I did a video of a, of a nematode as well. Did you? Amazing, cool. Yeah, you just literally get some moss from your back garden, stick it in some water, sieve it out, put it under a microscope, and you, and you get to see these little amazing creatures that are just so important for life on Earth. Wow, huh? I think you need to stick the link up. Yeah, so I might I might stick one of those on a little hot air balloon and see if I can get a tardigrade in space. Put that up. Yeah, tardigrade. Good, I like, I like a bit of time. <laughs> we'll have so, to do a tardigrade jingle, Matt. Oh, yeah, totally. Oh, my God, tardigrade. Oh, tardigrade <laughs> jingle. You've got me thinking. That's a great one. <laughs> That's your homework for next week. That is my homework for next week. So what um, else is going on, Matt? Well, you asked for, and I think we should do a little section on this, because I think this, there's some brilliant things in here yeah. about little space mis- misconceptions. I love so I love this kind of stuff. This is really my yes. kind of thing, Matt. <laughs> so I, I, I agree. I think there's some. What's really funny is that I've actually learned a couple of things that that oh, really totally. I, I've got I've you got know, completely wrong in my head. I mean, this is the this is the good thing because actually it's just more of me educating myself about going. Yeah. Oh, what do you mean the sun's not on fire? Like, what do you mean the sun is not a big <laughs> ball of fire just raging? Yeah. In our solar system, you know? Uh, yes, t- it turns is. out, Matt, it's a big ball of gas. A big ball of gas that's I mean, extremely knew? hot. Who yeah. well, knew? I think scientists knew. I think that. I think that. Th- this is the point here. Yeah, that's true. But no, I, I think a really good one is that I think if you asked most people, they would say that Mercury is the hottest planet. And the, and the reason why it's the hottest is because it's nearest the sun. And that's false. Let me tell you why, Matt. 
Yeah, yeah, go on. Because it doesn't really matter. Because as we know, Matt, Venus is the hottest because of its thick atmosphere. Yeah, and, see, and here's see what an, we're learning. And even better than that is on on Earth. Obviously, we're in an elliptical orbit. Now, in the northern hemisphere, when it's summer, mm. we're actually further away than from the sun than we are in winter. So our distance from the sun really doesn't make any difference. It's much much more to do with the jaunty angle that the Earth axis is at that, that, that creates the seasons. It's nothing Whoa. to do with whether we get nearer or further away from the sun. But I think most people probably think that that's what, the, uh, what happens. I'll tell you what I want to know, Matt. Mm-hmm. When we go, if, you, if we flew to space and you threw me out of a rocket, would I explode? <laughs> Uh, that is the that is the usual thing, isn't it? Where you get ch- where you see people flying out of uh, of spacecraft and they, yeah. and they and without a spacesuit and they explode. Yeah, uh, not true. In oh. fact, what? In fact, remember, actually, weren't we? Didn't we talk to? Wasn't that something that Michael Foles said? In fact, when he said that, uh, or I've certainly seen it where he. Um, when when the when the Mir space station was crashed into by a Soyuz, yeah. he said that the first thing he was thinking of, uh oh, and the first thing he did is exhale all his breath. Yes. Because yes, that you kind of would explode if if you would, if you had a sort of the fo- oxygen a lung in your full lungs. of air. Yeah. Yes, and the water so, in your blood. So yeah, the water in your blood actually does start to boil, mm. or the blood itself, because all the it dissolved definitely gases. Definitely wouldn't be pretty. Yeah. But so it's like you ex- would just you would be you just bloat. Because the yeah. skin would would keep you together. Yeah, so I think you've got about twenty seconds, haven't you? Before before, I mean, I think you're going to be in serious trouble pretty mm. much instantly. But you've got twenty seconds before you'll die, as long as you kind of do all the right procedures. Um, but it's basically an extreme version of the bends that you get. Mm. So it's a bit like going down to the bottom of the uh, ocean and coming up too fast. So what uh, you're is, saying is, it would, is would, it would like it would be like Cannibal Corpse covering Radiohead. Exactly. <laughs> exactly right. Um, oh, so what, my least favourite thing that I hear all the time is that uh, NASA spent millions of pounds developing a pen and the, so and the, Russians, just, and the Russians just took a pencil. Yeah, I mean, I, it's <laughs> just silly, isn't it? Yeah. So basically, it's just simply not so true. So how much money did they spend? Was it just two million? No, <laughs> they just didn't spend any money. It oh. was just a, a company, and and NASA and the Soviets both used the Fisher anti-gravity space pen because it was a great pen, not because of any other reasons. Absolutely. So, yeah. Uh, but here's what I was talking about earlier on. You know, we were talking about uh, microgravity. Yes. So when you're when you're in a spaceship or when you're in space, everyone thinks uh, that your that your weightlessness. Uh, you know that you're that you're in zero gravity. Right? Mm. It's just not true. In fact, it's the fact that you're in the presence of gravity that you're floating around the International Space Station. Um, right. Yeah, it, and it's really the fact that you're falling. It's just that you're falling. That's why you're floating around. The International Space Station is continually falling towards the Earth, but it just so happens to be that the Earth's curvature is exactly the same as the spaceships falling down so it it, it sort of stays at at the same height all the time and obviously you have to get to a certain speed to achieve that 
uh, and that's uh, obviously the speed that you choose will determine what height your um, you are in orbit. That is mad. And so yeah, yeah. So it, you're not you're not actually experience micro. Well, you're not experience weightlessness. You're falling. It's not the lack of gravity. It's the fact that gravity is actually there. I'll tell you what, Matt. I've definitely learnt that one. Yeah. Uh, uh, dark dark side of the moon. This oh, is this is quite. Moon. Yeah, this is like quite this a hard one. one to get your. It's a tricky one. Let me start off by saying that yeah, this definitely was one that I never really thought about that much. Because how often do you really think about it? But um, you know, as the moon, am I getting this right? Stop me if I'm wrong, Matt. Mm-hmm. I'm not reading any notes mm-hmm. for once. Um, so the moon doesn't orbit the earth once a day as some people think i believe it's what is it 27 something Mm -hmm. like 27.3 days uh it does one orbit of the earth Mm -hmm. and because it's turning at the same time as orbiting we only ever see the same side of the moon but there isn't a dark side of the moon per se it's not dark it gets just as much sun as the front it's just that we never see it Hence, dark side of the moon. This is this is known as being tidally locked. Yes. So as the, so, it's been it's been spinning around, and the, the, actually, this is exactly what's happened probably to the to Proxima C. It's probably tidally locked. Mm. So because because the, obviously the bulge of the planet slows the the orbiting moon down. It, it it's it's essentially that it's kind of always pointing towards its it, it, the thing that it's orbiting around. Yes. Obviously, the Earth has kept its spin as it spins around the Sun because it's far enough out that it hasn't been sort of slowed down in that way. Whereas the Moon has, and it's basically over time, it's just eventually one face gets stuck pointing at the Earth, so it's tidally locked. Uh, but yeah, of course, as it as it as the Earth goes round the Sun and as the Moon goes round the Earth. There is no dark side. So the dark side of the moon, just because we can't see it, it still gets day just as much as the side that we do see. It still gets daylight on both sides. And that'll explain uh, uh, tides in our oceans, right, Matt? Yeah, well, uh, well, as the moon goes round, yes, it, it, it the pulls a big, bulge, a big big bulge of water, both at the, at the side that the moon is on and at the other side as well. So there's a big bulge either side of the Earth, where, whichever side the moon, moon is on. Here, uh, sound in space is another one. Uh, I Actually, I was teaching this to my students the other day. You can, just because there's no, no one can hear you scream in space, um, actually there is a slight medium in space, uh, which means that there are some floating bits of hydrogen and helium bobbing around in there, but they're very, very sparse. But it's enough that you can have extremely low frequency sounds transmitted through that medium. And in fact, uh, the Chandra Space Telescope has picked up those low frequency sounds as they make their way through an enormous explosion stroke galaxy stroke cataclysm. And it can see it from billions of light years away. And, uh, and uh, that sound actually might help the way that um, galaxies form. So it might actually be totally cool that the uh, uh, sound can travel in space. That is, it might be vital. That is pretty mad. That is pretty mad. It's mad, but, Matt, it? are you going to upset me by saying that in Star Wars... Mm-hmm. When you hear blasters and lasers and ships going past, like you don't actually hear that. 
No, that 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 wouldn't exist. Oh, for that wouldn't exist. I know. I know. That's, for the that's love of bit, God, Lucas. <laughs> uh, and that's that's the another annoying space error in in Star Wars that we've met, uh, mentioned before is the old Kessel Run. Yeah. That, that uh, what, how, what what's the phrase he uses? He does it in twelve parsecs or 12 something. Twelve parsecs is it? Is it something like that? And parsecs, of course, is a distance, not a time. <laughs> which, most annoying. Which, as we said before, is the geekiest, most uh, dad fact ever, <laughs> isn't it? Well, also, and, and also the fact that asteroid belts are hard to fly through, uh, where you've got like all these asteroids that are really close together. Of course, they're absolutely miles away from each other, thousands of millions of miles away from each other asteroids it's really it's like it's so undense it's 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 hilarious but the one the one that i really didn't know and and i must admit i thought this i thought i thought this was true was the when capsules enter the earth's atmosphere i thought it was the friction of the atmosphere that heated the capsule up i really did think that as the capsule came in um that that friction because obviously your capsule's moving at a uh, hundred thousand miles an hour say yeah but and, and when it hits the atmosphere the friction from the air actually heats the thing up but it's it's not true it that it's it the friction apparently is only a kind of one percent um one percent of the of the cause of the heat really the cause is yeah yeah the actual the the, the biggest contributing factor is the heat is from compression. So as the as the uh, as the craft comes in, the air gets compressed and can't get out of the way in time, and and that compression is what causes this uh, huge amount of heat in a, in what's known as a bow shock. That is nuts. Uh, and the air, yeah, and so the air in the bow shock is trapped by the spacecraft, and and that's what causes it to heat up, and now and, and it doesn't allow for it to decompress or cool, and it just gets trapped there. Uh, and that's, uh, uh, that heat is the thing that gets absorbed by the heat shield. That is crazy. Matt, I know that we attract a lot of listeners from the rock and roll fraternity, you know, because we're a bit rock mm-hmm. and roll, aren't we? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Totally. Uh, so I'd like to say if there's any young bands who haven't yet got a name, we'd like, yeah, to, yeah. We'd like you to be called... Uh, Bowshock, yeah. Bowshock is a good name. I would like to throw that out there. Please send us your demos. So, uh, last week, Jamie, you said you wanted one more space fact. Yes, please. That, that revolved ha- around, that yes. literally revolved around black holes. Yeah, absolutely. Right. I wanted to do a trilogy of black hole space facts. So, I found a space fact that was that someone called Kurt Heckman had, had delivered somewhere in the vast pool of the internet a little piece of information that was trapped on the event horizon of the the thing we call the internet. Anyone and with the surname Heckman <laughs> has yeah. already got my vote, so Heckman. Give, give it to me. Heck yeah. And he's the president of VCalc, which looks like a really interesting uh, kind of website where you can... It's like a sort of uh, resource for uh, calculations and things. Anyway, yeah. he says, we live in a black hole. And here's his explanation. What? He says, according to Isaac Asimov's book, The Collapsing Universe, a black hole is defined by the density of matter, where the escape velocity is faster than the speed of light. To understand this, you have to consider what density is. The classic definition of density is mass per unit volume, which I I I can concur. Based on these two formulas, our universe is a black hole. 
the mass of all the matter in the universe within the volume of space containing all the galaxies is such that the escape velocity is greater than the speed of light. Therefore, our universe is a black hole and we live in it. Deep space. Good work, deep. Kurt. That's amazing. That's, that's bear deep. <laughs> <laughs> that's bear that deep, That is fam. bear deep, cuz. <laughs> oh, my goodness. My head hurts again. Oh, my again. goodness. Uh, thanks very much for joining us again and as we said at the beginning thanks everyone subscribe subscribe five stars comment like share repeat dream email (laughs) Uh, bye everyone bye everyone see you au revoir